Sorry, I don't love you. A phrase I've grown accustomed to. Cause with you, if something isn't wrong, something isn't wrong, something isn't right. Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is back this week. We are going to be talking about Arrival with Sean Gonzalez. Sean, how are you doing today? Doing quite well. How are yourself? Pretty good. I think you take the cake for earliest recorded podcast here. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's nice being up early, but sometimes you look at it and you go, man, I just did like six things in an hour. And now here I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and just jump right into this. I think one of the first things we can sort of talk about here is the casting because it's like there's a lot of people in this movie because of the military presence, but at the same time, there's not a lot of names you really need to know in this movie. So what did you think about the fact that, you know, you have Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker as your basically three main actors and actresses in this film? So Forrest Whitaker is someone I've come to really love because um, after watching Rogue One, of course, I saw him as kind of just this dominating presence. And I think he did a really good job at being that like kind of emotionless figurehead, just being like, okay, this is your job. Tell me why. And he's just very blunt. And I thought that was really great. Jeremy Renner, I didn't really expect to do as well as he did but I think he did come off as playing kind of like a sarcastic I don't know exactly what the hell I'm getting into but I have this to offer you and then Amy Adams has recently come up as one of my favorite new actresses of the past five years um I saw her in this movie Nocturnal Animals a couple weeks ago and it's with Jake Gyllenhaal and she just kills that performance too and it's a movie not a lot of people have heard of but I think Amy Adams is someone I've really been growing attached to in terms of her ability to kind of almost play that blank slate character. You know what I mean? Like she can play like this person's like you're experiencing it with her. And I think that she did a really good job at portraying like the wonder and the mystery of what Arrival set out to um, show you. Yeah. And then you have Michael Stolberg. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But, you know, I know him from watching this last season of Fargo. So to see him in a movie and a completely different role. I was just like, this is a little weird, but at the same time it worked too. He was a big dick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He <laughs> did a really good job. I thought he was actually like the perfect, like annoying, but kind of right character. You know what I mean? Like if you only saw it from his perspective, you would totally agree with him. And I think he was very convincing in how he gave his very stern, like, no, this has to be the military. We have to watch out for China. Like, he's again, he was very, very good at that. Yeah. And the only other face I really recognized was General Shang, who is played by Zima. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly either. I'm bad with, you know, some of these names, but, you know, he's someone who I feel like has just popped up and stuff here and there and hasn't really had, you know, like, a leading role in whatever he's been in, but it it was just one of those familiar faces you kind of see around and he's not in it a whole lot because he's obviously in China and that's where he's the general there. And, you know, you sort of mostly just see him on a screen until Amy Adams is having sort of these, I I don't even know what to call them because they're in the future. So they're not flashbacks. They're like flash forwards, I guess you can say. And her character, Louise Banks, sort of has this 
arc that I didn't totally expect. So I think that sort of leads us into the introduction of her character because she's the first one we see in the film. And what did you think of the opening with her and her daughter? Um, so, and obviously this is total spoilers for anyone listening to this. If yes. you have not seen Arrival, <laughs> go watch Arrival. It's one of those movies we could talk about probably for four hours. But I think the opening was something that really made you think. And I think what, and so the director's name is Denny, um, Denny Villeneuve, even though it's not exactly how it looks like it's spelled. But, <laughs> um, so I think he did a really good job of directing Amy Adams into kind of showcasing this like opening of her looking like she's been through something like you know she looked she comes into her job and maybe it's just this like her job or maybe she was just extra tired that day on her job but she looked like she had already lost her child and then yes. the very next time when her mom calls it's like asking like hey how are you doing like how are things and she's like mom I've like I'm the same I would call you if anything is different and so I think there was a really good um really good portrayal of uh misdirection because you were you bought into the whole time it's like okay she lost her daughter and now she's got to deal with this and it's just like how do you even live with this but I mean obviously um there's a whole different ending but I think Amy Adams really did a good job at showing that grief right away yeah and that twist that we don't really see until you know sort of the very end when she's standing there and asks Ian who is Jeremy Renner's character you know if he would sort of do something the same way if he could know what was going to happen in the future and that's when it's like everything just like clicked into place for me and I was like oh this is what's been happening with the daughter this entire time because you sort of know what's happening when she is talking to General Shang and everything like that and she's figuring out that she's predicting the future and everything like that but with the daughter it doesn't really hit until that moment sort of. Yeah, I got it a little bit earlier. I got it when they were talking, um, when she was asking Louise Banks like about this term, and then she's like, ask your father, it's a science term. And then she had that, it was like a memory, and you thought it was like in the past and her just going through things, because they never showed who the father was. But yeah. I figured it out right there when it was, uh, or like the full stop or the non-zero debate, something like that. Some, like, oh, yeah, yeah, like the non-zero sum game. Yeah, as soon as he said that term, she flashed forward to that I guess and yeah I guess I that's it when it that. started to like sort of sink in but it wasn't until she you know made that comment that I was like okay now everything makes much more sense yeah so that was a I think I think they did a really good job at showcasing um or like throwing you off almost the whole time and giving you like a reason to care for it too and that's why it was a pretty uh, my my opinion, like one of the best films of 2016. Yeah, and obviously we can't talk about the casting and characters of this film without talking about the aliens that show up. And they show up in these very interesting, like half pods, it looks like. You know, it looks like they should be lying flat on the ground, but instead they're standing straight up. And it's very interesting how they decided to portray the aliens in this because it wasn't you know something like the aliens movie where it seems like they're just sort of running rampant everywhere and they did it in a much more subtle way in this i think 
Yeah, and it's it's definitely one of those things where even if you're not into sci-fi, I had friends watch it and they enjoyed it and were kind of either mesmerized or I had one friend who just doesn't care and I was like, okay, like you don't get it. But um, so they're really interesting because there's 12 different places where these drop pods um, are put on the earth and no one can figure out what they're doing or no one can figure out why those spots. And we're all trying to figure out like the mathematics of everything. And these aliens are not trying to figure out the mathematics of everything. And they're like, there's even that throwaway line at the beginning. It's like, well, they don't understand basic algebra. And it's like, well, that's cause that's a linear like form of math. And then they could understand like a like calculus and all these other things. And while like, we're all sitting there like dumbfounded being like, Oh yeah, well let's try to figure out like why, like, this coordinate is this coordinate, and the aliens are just there. And so I think it was a good job at portraying, like, not everything has to be so exact. Like, and I don't know, it's, even their design is really cool, because, like, there's the heptapod, so there's seven legs, and then they have this giant head, but there's no mouth, no eyes, no nothing. So it's definitely a different take of an alien, especially one that was pretty much nonviolent. Yeah, and as you know, I definitely love Star Wars, but I think that's sort of science fiction in a totally different way because this really feels like it's meant to be a lot more realistic and something that, you know, could potentially happen. And I'm, I don't want to say like super selective about what sci fi movies I watch, but it's very hard for them to sort of appeal to me if they're trying to be realistic like Arrival is. And I think part of the reason I enjoyed this one so much is because of the fact that, you know, they're actually trying to understand what's going on and they're not sort of just running around trying to kill all of the aliens like you sort of see in, I wouldn't say all of the sci-fi movies, but in a good amount of them, it's something more along those lines. It feels like, like an invasion on a larger scale. Yeah. And uh, I definitely think, so this director also, um, Villeneuve, Denny Villeneuve, so he has that movie Enemy, and if you haven't seen Enemy, definitely watch it. Watch all of his films, but the <laughs> last six films I think he's made from 2010 on with like Incendies, um, Enemy, and then there's another one I'm missing off the top of my head, but there's one with Emily Blunt, um, starts with an S, but I'll, I'll think of it later on, and then there's this film. So in Enemy, there's this weird kind of crazy looking spider with long leg things walked like terrorizing a city for like two seconds and you see it and you see the design of the heptapods in this so i kind of think Villeneuve is just like own portrayal of all these things that we don't really know what they mean but i think the design was really cool for being a sci-fi grounded in reality movie yeah and Real quick, another thing with the cast, because Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner have been in, you know, these major superhero movies, sometimes it's, you know, hard to take the actors and actresses away from those films and see them as other characters. But I never really felt that was an issue in this film in particular. You know, it's not like where you see Robert Downey Jr. and he's sort of always going to be Iron Man now. But instead, I was like, okay, these two actually fit this role pretty well so it didn't feel like you know their previous work was overshadowing everything they did in this film and I think that was done really well too yeah I can definitely agree with that I mean you see Jeremy Renner and you're kind of like who Hawkeye but then you're also kind of like who the hell's Hawkeye so <laughs> yeah and was the movie you were thinking of Sicario yes okay That's I have that on it. my watch list because that looks good Basically, what you should do is watch 
every like it's Incendi's prisoners, enemy, Sicario, arrival, and then Villeneuve's also doing the new Blade Runner and apparently the new Dune. So like for someone to talk about sci-fi movies or movies that are like kind of bend your reality, Villeneuve's definitely the best director at it that I've seen in the past five, six years again. So Yeah, and we already mentioned them trying to communicate with the aliens. So why don't we go ahead and talk about, you know, the language and that sort of thing? Because I know you definitely wanted to talk about that. And the aliens have more of a visual language. So it's sort of like, I don't want to say the Stone Age necessarily, because obviously they're a bit more advanced and everything like that. But it's similar to that because they sort of put these symbols together to create their sentences and they almost form like this giant circle basically. So what did you think of the fact that they had to come up with this entire visual language for this film? So um, this language, so it's all shown in like these really complex circles and they're actually all algorithms that were designed I don't want to say by Villano's son, but I think someone pretty close to him. So for them to really go into looking at like a different way to show a non-linear language, and especially when um, I think that monologue by Jeremy Renner in the very uh, middle of the movie where he's kind of discussing like how the aliens write and how it's not a left-to-right language and how that their speech and their writing patterns are not the same. They could be talking but not writing exactly that, um, especially on that window. And so for... People to sit down and kind of create that language without having to show any communication or like to audio use any communication. I think that was really cool because it kind of makes you focus more on the movie and you're kind of like, okay, so what what are they seeing that we're not seeing? Um, and it was it was uh, no, it was the founder of Wolfram Af- Afra that was Alpha that was brought to help develop the visual language, which is a program, I'm pretty sure. So his son wrote the program of each individual word that was used within the circles. And I think that's fucking crazy. (laughs) The fact that they took a linguist and a scientist, and that was sort of it, I found that a little surprising. But I guess because it was only one ship, they didn't feel like they needed, you know, a whole team of linguists and scientists or anything like that. And the fact that you could see this happening in, what was it, 11 other areas of the world, too. There were 12 pods total, I believe. And to see, you know, what those countries came up with and what Louise and Ian were able to come up with, I think it was just really interesting to sort of see how the different countries handled the same situation, too. Yeah, and I think that's there's so many throwaway lines that you miss on your first time. I've seen this movie, I think, five or six times now. But okay. um, <laughs> so you have the linguist, um, you have Amy Adams, who's who's the first one to break the code of what they're saying is not what they're writing. And so, and so you have the 12 pods. And then so the entire point of their language is that they're not talking in a linear form. They are talking, they're not even talking in a tense. You have to realize that um, since these heptapods are not, thinking in the future or thinking in the past, their their time is all together, that they don't have a tense. So that's why you see things like Ian walks. Like, that's not a tense. That's happening. Or you think of um, when Costello at the very end says Abbott is death process. That is the only way that that could be written where it's not Abbott has died or Abbott is dying or Abbott is dead or Abbott right. is... Like, that is the only way to... Think of the way to say, okay, Abbott is in a death process. 
So for a heptapod, that just means that this whole time, like, and this is why this movie's so mind blowing. The whole time, every heptapod and all twelve pods knew Abbott was going to die. They knew it was going to happen, and they knew how it was going to happen. But they were still able to communicate with the humans and still be able to um, throw that into like a crazy perspective and get their message off. So that's why it's like you really sit there and think about this movie, and you really think of how detailed it is on how communication was portrayed, and that's why it's like holy. Like, there is no other movie I've ever seen that has done this. Um, and it's it's cool with the other countries, too, because there's one throwaway line when uh, everything starts going into the war, or, like, the war mode, and then the Russians say there is no time. And so you could look at that as them saying, like, there's no time, we have to act now, but what it's really saying is that the heptapod blatantly told them there is no time. But since they can't say, like, in a past tense or a future tense, they just have to say there is no... So it's almost simple. It's almost like they're speaking in simple English, and we have to try and figure out, like, what it means. You know what I mean? It's almost like they're speaking in riddles. So, for them to say there is no time, it's not like... It's a definite throwaway line. It's never brought up again. But that is basically what the entire point of the movie was, right then and there, thrown away in, like, one line. (laughs) Yeah, and another interesting thing, you know, is Louise sort of wants to share information with the other countries, and she's pretty much immediately shut down on that and you sort of see all the screens starting to disconnect and everything and i think you know because of her position as a linguist and not as military personnel or something like that i feel like she's instantly more willing to share because she just wants to know pretty much as much as she can about this language and these aliens and i think the fact that they wouldn't even let her do that just sort of goes to show how different everyone in that same room was thinking. Oh yeah, completely. It definitely shows different um, constructs of how humans are. I mean, we can, you can show this movie to someone that's a little bit more maybe aggressive tempered or maybe more like scared of something and be like, yeah, fuck the aliens with blowing up. And then you can uh, show it to someone who's a little bit more like open and you can be like, okay, so like I can see both points or you can show it to someone who's completely, um, pacifist and they'd probably be like yeah i want to know more so there's a lot of different like things that this movie goes through in the terms of like humanity and i think that was very well done especially in terms of like yeah this would probably happen like if we had a bunch of things happen to us like this in real life we would probably kind of shut communications down i mean we already have like a couple countries where we're not allowed to like even talk to them so it's not like this is too far-fetched for a true sci-fi movie yeah exactly and you know Ian is sort of just stuck in the middle in a lot of situations because you see when she steals the sat phone and is trying to get a call out to the general in China, Ian literally puts himself between her and the military while she finishes up the call. And, you know, that's in the middle in a more literal sense, but he sort of doesn't feel like he's as strongly opinionated about what's going on as Louise, but at the same time, you can tell he's still very intrigued by what's going on. Yeah, and I think it was part of Ian being so mystified by Louise as well, because I think everyone realized that like Louise was getting somewhere else that they weren't on a different level. Right. And I think that comes into... I mean, Ian definitely helped, because he was the one that broke that code or that pattern of 1 out of 12, so they only had 
one out of 12 of the part. And that was kind of the whole point was like you needed all 12 parts to really figure out what the actual language was going to do from a scientific standpoint. But yeah. from Louise's standpoint, she had already been gifted the knowledge of the language itself. So it was like kind of one of those things where you can throw two people into a country and tell them learn the language and one will get the books out and be like, okay, I'm going to get everything accurate. I'm going to get the fucking like suffixes right. I'm going to get all the verb changes right. I'm going to get all that right. And then you can give someone that's just going to go and like be like, okay, how the fuck do I say hello? And they're going to figure it out on a completely different level that's going to be more prone to emotional understanding rather than this very script and very um, like repeated dialect that, you know, is very mathematical, very scientific. So I think that was kind of the two viewpoints there. Yeah. And what they even do is, you know, they have Louise figure out what words they're saying, but grammatically, a lot of it still seems a little out of place. And that's where, you know, the use weapon comes in and you can tell, you know, they aren't actively trying to harm all of the people at the military base and everything like that. But at the same time, you have, you know, the military sort of freaking out about this and you see other militaries have figured it out in other countries too. And that's when the panic sort of sets in for everyone. And it's just one of those things where, you know, you can easily misunderstand a different language just because, you know, they don't put the same emphasis on certain words or words mean totally different things in those languages. And that felt like it was really well done, too, because you have this brand new language to pretty much everyone in the world at this moment in time. And you're sort of just trying to work out as much as you can. But as soon as the word weapon comes up, it's like they sort of want to shut everything down. And I feel like while they were sort of rushing to that conclusion, like you said, it was one of 12. So how much damage could just a single pod really do? Yeah. And that's definitely a little bit more of a a different idea to even like consider because you have like one of 12 that's saying use weapon and then so but then they share it with everyone and everyone's starting to get that so then you start to think like the heptapods they were in communication the whole time even though like we couldn't tell what they were saying um it almost felt like they're communicating with each other but we don't know how they're communicating with each other we don't know if like the heptapods are just saying like hey my person came but they have to know what's going to happen because there's no like time for them and that's why when you see louise and um Ian go into the heptapod again that last time when the bomb's there and they don't know it. You see, like, Abbott really hesitate. Like, hes like again, you have to watch these details. But Abbott hesitates coming up to the window. And then as Louise and Abbott, like, put their hands together and she gets the information and the data drop, like, Costello swims away, but Abbott stays behind to make sure that they survive because Louise now has the information. So... For that to happen, like, everyone knew, and, like, once you realize that, like, Abbott was going to be the one that was going to drop off everything, and so for even the heptapods to, like, figure that out, like, where did that come from? How did these 12 pods decide, like, this was where it was going to be? But then you can't even ask that because they just knew. So it's, like, a very, very, like, existential, philosophical, like, debate of, like, is there free will? <laughs> yeah, and another thing... 
we briefly mentioned already, but I want to go a little more in depth on is the idea of time in this film, not only in the sense of how the film was paced, but, you know, the nonlinear time that we see within the film, too. So why don't we go ahead and start off with the pacing for the film in general, because the film runs close to two hours, I believe, when I was watching it, it said like an hour and 56 minutes or something like that. And obviously, I typically, you know, leave somewhere between five to 10 minutes for the credits to roll, because depending on what kind of film it was and the effects and everything like that, credits can take quite a while to get through. But it really didn't feel like you were sitting there for almost two hours watching this movie because of just how well they put the story together. And you're sort of going back and forth between what Louise is seeing in the future and what's currently happening. So you sort of get this break in the pace throughout it. Yeah. And I think the only, the only complaint I ever saw about um, the pacing of the movie was that there was some person that was like for Ian's monologue, because Ian's monologue is basically the whole point of it sums up like three months, I think of uh, like work that they did with the heptapods. And so his monologue just kind of goes through everything that they learned. And then we didn't really see like a good analysis of it or like good shots of it. So that's like the only weird pacing. But again, like, I think the monologue held up on its own to kind of showcase like a little bit of shots and to kind of give like a good scientific understanding. And I think it definitely brings in the audience like, I get it now. So then it picks back up. Um, the Towards the end of the movie, it gets like a little drawn out, I'd say, but that's when it's just like, you're supposed to sit there and wonder and be like, oh my gosh, I was, I was blown away. Like I didn't know what was happening. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it seems like movies keep getting longer and longer. Like I was scrolling through Netflix one day or something and I stopped on a movie and it was like over two and a half hours long. I was like, why? <laughs> you know? And sometimes long movies like that work, but it seems like, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, a lot of big movies were like, you know, somewhere between 90 to 100 minutes. And that's somehow extended by, you know, a good 20 to 30 minutes now, if not, you know, even an hour sometimes. And it's interesting to me which movies they decide to sort of have either come in just under that two hour mark or go well over that two hour mark. And I think, you know, with this one, keeping it on the below two hour mark is probably a good idea because I think, you know, they probably could have drawn this out a lot more, but I think if they had, it might not have hit nearly as hard with a lot of the audience because, you know, when I heard about this movie, it felt like within, you know, my group of friends who go to the movies actively and whatnot, it was pretty well received. And as someone who's just, you know, bad at going to movies in a timely manner, for the most part, unless it's, you know, like Marvel or DC stuff. And even then it depends on which Marvel or DC movie it is. So for me, you know, to watch it just this past week is actually not too bad for me because I've been recently watching movies that I probably should have watched way sooner than I have. But this was definitely a nicely paced one, at least for me and what I was expecting to get out of it as a sci-fi film, which isn't a genre I'm typically actively going out to go find movies in. Yeah, I think they did a good job at definitely keeping everything well, well tightened. I don't even know. I haven't even looked at deleted scenes because I feel like even the deleted scenes like wouldn't really show much. 
Yeah. So that brings us to the idea of time as nonlinear. And that's something else that Louise brings up with the aliens. You know, for them, things don't happen in a typical fashion that we think of, you know, past, present, future, and that sort of thing. And how Louise is able to look into the future, it's never really explained, but she does spend time, you know, sort of like face to face with the aliens, basically, without having that wall between them. And I'm wondering if, you know, either I just missed this or if that was the reason why she was sort of able to look into the future. But I feel like that was happening even before that moment where she's, you know, in there with the aliens. So they definitely bring up that one, um, I don't, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but that psychology idea of language that once you start learning a language, you can start to like dream in it and then like immerse yourself too far. And so that, that idea was kind of the whole point was that if you give yourself to an entire language, you're going to start seeing things and hearing things and looking at things from a different perspective. And that was the whole point of Louise's like journey into noticing like every little aspect and spending so much time on the language was that. It was basically just trying to show, like, this person learned the language to a point where they became the language. They became the idea of what these heptapods were. And so I think, again, that's why at the when she goes up into the heptapod and she's like, I don't know how to draw. Like, I can't draw your stuff. So then she's able to, like, sit back and able to do it. But that's because that scene with Abbott, where Abbott eventually does become death process, as it is said, um... Abbott stays behind to do the data dump and so that the scientists can all fucking analyze it, but it was mainly so they could pass it on into Louise because I don't know if they were just kind of choosing a worthy person, but this person was able to get that data drop and then understand the language. So it might be like one of those things where the alien was able to transmit it to her, or it might be one of those things where even if she was like, when they asked her, like, are you dreaming in their language? And then you see that shot of the heptapod right into the room. So I feel it was more of just trying to showcase that Louise was at a higher understanding of what was happening. Yeah, and that definitely makes sense, I guess, for a science fiction movie anyway. Who knows if that's really an actual thing? Because, well, personally, I don't know another language. It's like, you know, I'll understand bits of Spanish here and there, but there's no way I know it well enough to be like dreaming in Spanish or anything like that. So that's definitely an interesting notion. And I wonder if, you know, there are any articles or anything that came up sort of about the psychology of this movie in particular. Um, There were a few. And so mostly, I think, in terms of real world, I'm pretty sure a lot of that, um, the ability to like, be too immersed in a language that I don't remember what that psychology like experiment was. But I think it's not necessarily true. But I think they just like took it and went with it and said, Okay, this is like, how you would get into it and how it would be able to make sense. And then you can like, so that's how like the time section started to work was that she was able to understand that their language did not need time. So why should her life need time? And so then it was able to break that, you know, spectrum of time and give her the ability to see things that were going to happen and then explain things that had happened in the past that were happening at the same time. So that's why there's that scene with um, General Shang, and it's happening to her at the same time, but it's also in the future. So that's why it seems so awkward, because she's doing both at the same time, kind of giving an insight on how the heptopods are seeing things, 
or trying to understand things. And fun fact, what she says to General Shang is, "War in war there is no winners, only widows." So I think that's another really good key and something that you know they didn't give away on purpose. But once you understand that, it's the whole point is there's just no sense to go to war if you don't understand things. Like, and that's kind of that whole experiment. It's like this person went to, through an entire understanding to find that we didn't need to be so aggressive. We didn't need to be so violent and we just needed to work together. And I think us working together is what the heptapods wanted this to do. And so I'm going to go on a tangent here, but um, Ab or Costello says Abbott's in death process. And so Luis asks like, what is the weapon? It's like the language is a weapon. And then so basically Costello says, we give you weapon now in 3000 years, you help the heptapods. But you have to think the heptapods don't understand that in 3,000 years from now, they're going to need help. What is happening 3,000 years to the heptapods is happening at the same time. Right. So the heptapods are also learning from us, whether it's our use of linearity, whether it's us being able to understand and not you know, destroy them. So maybe them, that 3,000 years is the same time. So if Luis is helping them now and not getting a war started on them, she's also helping them in the future because that time is now. If that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. And I know what you're talking about with General Shang, because like I said, she took the sat phone to make the call. And at the same time, she's, you know, having this conversation with him about that exact call. And it's interesting that you bring that up because at the time, it's like I was aware it was happening, but I wasn't putting too much thought into it. And, you know, we sort of see the same thing with the zero sum game and that conversation with the daughter but what do you think about the fact that she is very aware of everything that's going to happen in her life and still goes ahead and moves forward with that knowing everything she does yeah and so uh, by the way it's a sapper wharf hypothesis just found it okay. um that's the linguistic relativity and so basically it just says that there's a paradigm that if you learn a language you look at the world differently so i i can understand that point i don't think I think the sci-fi part came with a time and all that stuff. Yeah. But um, so for – I think that brings up a lot of questions about free will. And I think it also brings up a lot of questions of humanity because what you want to say is like – so she asks um, Ian and says like, hey, if you knew what was going to happen, like what would you do? And he's like, well, I guess I would – I think he says I would um, ask more questions or something like that. Is that what he says? What does he say there? I um, do not recall. <laughs> um, he basically says that he would, or he would state how he feels more. So like okay. she asked like, hey, if, if you were going to, if you already knew something that was going to happen and like, would you go through with it? And he said, I, or like she asked like, how would you go through, how would you live your life if you already knew what the outcome was going to be? And he was like, well, I guess I'd state how I'd feel more. And so when you look at it that way, there's a lot of people that always bring up that question on you and like just random conversations. Like, so if you had cancer and you were given this much time to live, what would you do? And so that's kind of like what Elise is, or what Luis is looking at. She's like, okay, I'm going to have a daughter and that daughter is going to die. And this is going to be the person I'm going to have that daughter with. And so she even goes through with the daughter and says, well, I told your dad something that I had known and he got mad and he left. And so she probably already knew that was going to happen. So she knew eventually when she told him that he was going to leave, but it brings up the whole idea. It's like, you have to make the most of what you can and you have to make the most of everything that you can. And that's why it's such an emotional movie for Luis and for other people, because 
you can be put in these situations where you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. But the entire point of that, I think, is to just spend, you know, she had 18 years with her daughter. So she went and did as much as she could with the 18 years. And that's why those flashback scenes are so engrossing because they're shot in a different light. And they're so, they're so like relative to what everyone grows up with. You know what I mean? Like Amy Adams plays the perfect mom in all of those flashbacks or flashback flash forward scenes. And it really brings up, it's like, what would you do if you knew you were going to die in four days? Yeah. And it's just one of those things where they sort of really hit home with the fact that, you know, she's very aware of everything that's going to happen and sort of how things are going to slowly fall apart for her because you know not only is Ian going to leave but she's going to lose her daughter and it's just one of those moments where you know it's a sad thing to watch happen in the flash forwards I guess I'm just going to keep calling them that because I don't know what else to call them but you know you sort of see how she's processing that in the present day too and you know it's one of those things where she's not only getting hit with it once, but twice now. Yeah. And, and I think so this brings into um, a conversation of determinism versus free will. So if you think of it this way, Louise's free will, she could not go through with it, but she's also determined that she wants to have this kid because she's seen it already. She's already seen what's going to happen. So why, would you try and go break away from it? Like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you figure out your path and sometimes you don't, but she wants to do this and it's also her free will to do it. Right. So it, they're both compatible. And I think the whole, the Hannah thing, that's because the daughter's name. And so her name being a palindrome spelled the same as front and back, beautiful way of like summing up the movie in, in like one word. And that's why this movie's so beautiful with its linguistic analysis and its communication ability so they chose the, word, the name Hannah because it's spelled the same as front and back. And so that was the whole like nonlinear approach to naming the child. I mean, there's no past, there's no future, there's just this, and that's all inter intertwined. So I think that it's a very, uh, even though it's like the smallest details, you can look into it and be like, man, this movie went into a complete different um, world and went so far into believing it that it just, gives you so much emotions to really watch it again and again because you're like, man, I already know what's going to happen, but I'm going to sit through it. And that's kind of like what it's like. You've already, you've already seen the movie once, right? You already know what's going to happen. You're going to watch right. it again, though. That's kind of what Luis is going through. <laughs> yeah, and one of the last things I want to bring up, because you can't really talk about science fiction movies without talking about the visual effects and everything like that. And obviously, you know, with most of these movies, it's a really, really big part of the movie. But here it felt like there was a good balance of what needed effects and what didn't because you have a lot of scenes, you know, with Louise and her daughter first off and then her and Ian just sort of working on the military base and, you know, taking a drive in the truck to get to the pod and everything like that. So you have a lot of scenes where you really don't need any visual effects at all. But then with the pod and the aliens, that's where, you know, the majority of their visual effects come in. And, you know, it never really felt like you were staring at visual effects either. I know with some science fiction movies, especially older ones, it's sort of funny how bad they look. And 
I think, you know, you have very few exceptions to that. Like with Star Wars, they put a lot of people on costumes instead of using visual effects necessarily. So some stand up better than others. But I think this is one that's going to stand up really well for quite a while. Like if you watch this 10 years down the road, I don't think it's going to look bad by any means. I completely agree. And I'll put it I'll put it this way. So I was in Chicago in February and I was talking to a bartender and this dude was 75, 76 years old and just a bartender in Chicago, like coolest guy in the world, but he didn't have internet. He didn't have a phone. He just went to his work five days a week. I mean, his schedule never changed. And he was like the, one of the managers of the bar and a cool, pretty freaking cool life. If you have to like ask me, but, (laughs) um, uh, we we t- he loves films, so he said all he does was work and then go to the um, cinema every week. And he says he doesn't see movies with a bunch of practical effects. Like if he sees it like an ad on the TV in the bar and it looks like there's too much visual effects and shit, he's not going to see it. He saw Arrival, and he said it was one of the best films he saw of 2016. So I think the effects of Arrival and even like the um, even the marketing, it didn't really show them that much, but. Arrival didn't necessarily need to blow you away with that because it, all they needed it was for a backdrop and then to kind of like bring you into this foreground of like, what did I just watch? <laughs> um, so I think that was a really good job at keeping it not too far. I mean, like even the heptapod, like it doesn't look that crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the fact that there's sort of just this general fog surrounding them at all times too it's like you know they didn't have to go all out and show us you know every little detail of these aliens you could sort of just get a general figure out of you know what they had there and it was more than enough because what was really important was the language and obviously visual effects come into play with that because you know you have this sort of black mist or something, I guess you can say. And that is sort of forming the language and everything. So I think that's where a good chunk of the visual effects actually came in was for their very visual language. Yeah. And that, again, was all um, integrated by um, Wolfram Alpha, the creator of that. So, But that was all like put into an algorithm. I think that's crazy. Um, The other thing I want to talk about before we go off. And so this whole movie, I don't know if you know, is based on a short story called Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. And so it was brought to, um, obviously, the feature film by Denis Villeneuve. But the soundtrack of this movie is entirely haunting, especially when it's bringing up to the heptapod the first time and they're on that helicopter. And there's just a, it's not necessarily the inception noise, but it's just like a really loud bellow. And it's kind of like, disturbing and so if you watch Sicario there's a lot of the same kind of tonal qualities between that and they were both done by composer I think Johan Johansson I want to say that's how you pronounce it but I think he did a really good job at making sure that the I mean it's not like anything too stylish it's not like it's John Williams or Michael uh, Giacchino or anything it's just this is like a very cause and effect style of soundtrack and kind of creating these moments where it's like drawn out so it's like it's not like you need a big like dun dun dun, dun like here it is it was just like a wah and you're like whoa what is this supposed to mean yeah and you know those that moment you mentioned it's like I was 
watching it in our living room and you could just sort of hear like the subwoofer start rumbling and you have a lot of moments where this movie gets pretty loud especially when you have you know the military helicopter showing up and everything so in general you do have some loud sound effects moments but I think with the soundtrack it just sort of amplifies everything that you are feeling when these moments are happening and that's sort of what you really want a soundtrack to do because you don't want the soundtrack to necessarily be super obvious while everything is happening, I think. And that's sort of when soundtracks feel like they work best, at least in my opinion, you know, with something like Stranger Things or something like that. You sort of just have these really well done soundtracks. And it's like in the moment they add something, but they don't stand out so much to the point where they are taking away from whatever is happening. Yeah, I think, and again, it's a really good, I think, I think Villeneuve, like the director in his career right now is at a point where he knows exactly what he needs for his films and he can kind of see it in a different light and he's not being like hampered by studios and all this other shit. So they really give him a lot of like free will and especially like his movies. I mean, besides like Blade Runner and Dune, which are probably gonna be really big and they have to like be done a certain way or something like these first five or like from Incendies to this movie, like all of them have just like follow this kind of weird pattern, but they all have this like completely unique soundtrack, this completely like ornate feeling and this kind of, he kind of takes like different elements of like human senses and kind of throws them out the window and goes, okay, so like, do you fear aliens? All right. So like, how about trying to like communicate with them? Or do you like, are you like emotionally in tied with grief? Okay. Like how about this for you? How about knowing that you're going to, being a divorce and you're going to lose your kid. So I think he does a really good job at capturing those constant feelings that we have. And even just like, they never go away, you know, they're always lingering. And that's why like once Hannah dies, and even when you see it in the beginning, like you never want to see a mother lose her child. You never want to lose anybody in your life. So I think for him to ask the big questions, like, would you still go through with it? I think that's something that a lot of directors shy away from, but I feel like this guy, if you watch Enemy, if you watch Sicario, if you watch Prisoners, this guy kind of ties you up in these big what-if questions that make you really go, okay, so like, how would I deal with this? Yeah, exactly. Well, is there anything we haven't touched on yet that you want to talk about for the film? No, but definitely watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully people have watched it before listening to this because we pretty much gave the entire movie away. But Sean, I just want to say thank you so much, one, for recommending that I do in fact watch this because if we hadn't done the podcast on it, I don't know when I would have ended up getting around to it. I think this podcast is sort of a good motivation motivator for me to get through a lot of movies that I haven't necessarily seen before or it's been a while since I've seen them so this was definitely a great pick and thank you so much for coming on yeah thank you for watching it and thank you for having me of course and as always to the listeners thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day